This is a world view of history, and it is March 17th, 2010, and our book tonight is Before the Fallout from Marie Curie to Hiroshima by Diana Preston. Bob and Ruth are out tonight on a well-deserved vacation, so let's get started with the program. This book was selected because it chronicles one of the most defining moments in human history. For after the dropping of Little Boy over Hiroshima, the world could never be the same. The author describes the golden age of physics when an elite group of less than a hundred physicists changed man's understanding of matter and energy itself. The author describes how, under the pressures of war, four nations sought to develop a nuclear bomb which subsequently would threaten the existence of humanity with nuclear annihilation. time of the explosion, we were wearing Polaroid welder's glasses. Even then, the explosion, when eventually it came, was so bright that it had the same effect as if night had been turned into day. A few seconds later, when it was safe to take off our glasses, we looked out towards the target and saw a vast ball of fire. This fire, which generated almost 10 million degrees of heat, began rocketing up into the heavens at a speed of something like 20,000 feet a minute. After 15 seconds, the flame had died out and turned into a cloud. The cloud rose to a height of 60,000 feet in less than five minutes. Throughout the whole time, it remained a boiling, turbulent mass and continued expanding until it reached some two miles across. We knew from what we had been told that its activity would destroy anything that came within its reach, and therefore we stayed out of range some five or six miles away. Good morning and welcome to Focus 580. This is our morning talk program. My name is David Inge. Glad to have you with us. In the first hour of the program today, we'll be talking with historian and writer Diana Preston about her new book, which is titled Before the Fallout, From Marie Curie to Hiroshima. She was born and raised in London. She studied modern history at Oxford, where she first became involved in journalism. After earning her degree there, she became a freelance writer. She has contributed book reviews to a number of publications, including The Wall Street Journal and The L.A. Times. She's also been a broadcaster for both the BBC and the CBC. Eight years ago, she started writing about history and since has published a number of books, among them books about the sinking of the Lusitania and the Boxer Rebellion. Ms. Preston, hello. Oh, good morning. Thank you for talking with us today. Oh, it's a real pleasure. I appreciate it. The, the title that you've selected for the book obviously invites us to think about this story as a, a loss of innocence almost on a cosmic scale. Uh, do you think, in fact, that that is the, what this story is? I think that's exactly what this story is. It seemed to me that... Really, the development of the atomic bomb, the dropping of the bomb, it was one of the greatest watersheds in human history. The day after that had happened, nothing would ever be the same again. The knowledge that we human beings, with all our cleverness and all our creativity, we've actually managed to develop something which ultimately could, could destroy us, our planet, our environment. 
One of the uh, the questions you ask, it's it's again the question that that's, uh, many historians confront, no matter what it is they're writing about, is how might things have gone differently? Do you think that somehow the move from uh, discovering radiation and learning more about what was happening at the subatomic level and how atoms were structured and how they could be manipulated, that all of that must lead inevitably at some point, if not in 1945, then later, to nuclear weapons. Yes. I was fascinated by that because it seemed to me, as you say, this this whole story which starts, you know, back at the end of the 19th century, people starting to realize that the, you know, the atom was not the smallest unit of matter, started to tinker about with it, to probe inside it. Uh, how all of that could have led within really such a relatively short period of time to, to the ultimate destructive weapon. And you say, you know, you just asked a very good question, was it inevitable where this was going to end up? And it seemed to me that for many years of the story that I look at in the book, it was scientists trying to assemble a, a jigsaw puzzle, if you like, finding pieces to fit into a picture. But nobody really knew what that overall picture was. You find, you know, as late as 1933, one of the greatest experimental scientists, Ernest Rutherford, the man who actually deduced that at the heart of the atom was the nucleus, you find Ernest Rutherford saying, you know, the idea of actually harnessing energy from atoms to use, you know, either for nuclear power or explosively, he, he called it moonshine. He said it was completely impossible. And yet, with developments in the 1930s, the political developments, um, you find everything starts to accelerate. You find that uh, you, know, you have the discovery of fission, nuclear fission, happening on the very eve of the outbreak of war. In the most catastrophic and difficult of circumstances, this piece of knowledge is finally understood and interpreted. And everything starts accelerating from that moment because we're going into world war. It becomes a race. And yet, if you hadn't had, the, I think, the pressure of external developments of what was going on in Europe, that knowledge would have come at some point, but it wouldn't have happened so quickly. Because, it, because of the political situation, it did become a race. Because of the political situation, because of war, governments were prepared to suddenly pour enormous resources into the technology to actually make it happen. Interesting to, to think back and to go back as you do to the and to look at what the world of physics was like in the early years of the last century. Uh, as you explained there, in the early 1900s, there actually weren't very many physicists. And, and of those, the number that were working on radioactivity was even smaller. It was a very small community of individuals, one where everybody knew everybody else. Absolutely. Now, I, I find it quite extraordinary. If you open the Encyclopedia Britannica, for uh, you know the, the early 20th century, right? so if you look at 1900, you know physics barely gets a mention, and you find you know scientists advising other scientists that if they want to develop their careers, you know physics is probably not necessarily the field to go into. After all, we know most of what there is to know about the physical world, don't we? And then within a very few years, all of that is, is, is being stood on its head, you know, from Marie Curie's experiments building on the work of William Röntgen, the, discovery, sorry, the discoverer of X-rays, of the work of Henri Becquerel, the Frenchman who discovered radioactivity. You have this knowledge uh, starting to develop that there is something going on within the atom. There is some power in there. There are elements within the atom that need to be better understood. But as you say, it was a tiny community. And, you know, in, in the early 1900s, there were probably across the whole world, maybe 
a hundred scientists involved in this area, and I'm talking about you know from from uh, Japan to Europe to a little bit later on the United States. So a very small almost like a band of brothers, you could call them. They knew each other, they studied with each other, they went to each other's laboratories, they met at conferences. Uh, they really were, at that stage, a, you know, a band of friends exploring this exciting new area of science with little thought of international rivalry or politics or all the things that were going to intervene later on. Early on, what was in the minds of the people who were doing this work was simply what seemingly simply was pure science also at at the point where we turn the corner where we go from pure science to the idea of developing a weapon how did they think about the fact that their work was contributing to the development of the most powerful weapons that human beings have ever had and you find a very rapid transition going on you go to the winter of 1938 to two refugee scientists sitting uh, on a log out in the snow in Sweden, trying to interpret some experimental results that are coming out of some work that a pair of chemists are doing in Germany. Those chemists can't understand what it is that their experimental data is telling them. So they ask these refugee physicists to try and interpret it. And sitting on a log, you know, literally scribbling on the back of the proverbial envelope, these two, um, <clears throat> the Austrian Lisa Meitner and her nephew Otto Frisch, they realize that what has actually happened is that these chemists in what is by their Nazi Germany have managed to split the atom. Uh, from that moment, you know, the realization that that knowledge you know, changes everything. Because these, these refugee scientists, they go back to their laboratories, they check out the findings, they share it with other people, other people like Niels Bohr, the Dane, who uh, is just on the verge of going over to America to deliver a series of lectures. He brings the information about fission to the United States, he announces it at a meeting. Before he's even finished speaking, scientists are rushing out of the room to, to try it for themselves. So you know, the proof is there that nuclear fission is something which happens, you can split the atom, you can apply Einstein's uh, theory of E equals mc squared to it to prove that the splitting of the atom releases energy. Now, that piece of knowledge can't really come at a worse time. As many of the scientists actually realize at that point, you find a movement among some of them saying, well, look, you know, we know this, and the Germans know this, and it's very clear that war is, is imminent. We've got to do something to prevent this knowledge getting out into wider circulation. We must stop publishing our findings. Some scientists agree to do that, some don't. The information gets out into the, uh, into the published scientific press. Then you have war breaking out, and you have the uh, Allied governments, you know, you have, have uh, Britain already at war, trying to work out what to do, should they have a, uh, an atomic project. Uh, very fearful that, well, if they don't do it, well, the Germans are going to do it. Uh, so you have the, the idea, at the very least, of deterrence being born at this early stage of the First World War. But the, you know, the project accelerates. Um, uh, there are further scientific breakthroughs. People realize that you need far less fissile material, that's in enriched uranium or indeed plutonium, to make a bomb than pre people previously thought. The realization grows that it's actually really quite feasible. It's not technically so difficult so long as you have the resources. America comes into the frame, the whole thing accelerates, the Manhattan Project gets underway, the technical problems are progressively addressed and broken down and dealt with. You move to the situation where you actually have a device which you can test. We have the, uh, the first 
nuclear test happening in July 1945. And you have the scientists sitting on a hill in New Mexico watching this test. And that is really the, that's the critical moment for them. All those years of work and thought and speculation and of believing they were partaking in a race where it was necessary to develop a weapon, say, before Nazi Germany got there. What was actually in their mind at that point when they realized they'd done it? They saw this first nuclear explosion. Mm. And I talked to um, a man called Hans Beta, who was the head of theoretical physics at Los Alamos, who very sadly j- j- just died earlier this year. And I asked Hans his, his feelings about this, that moment of realization that they'd actually done it. They succeeded in creating an explosive chain reaction. I said, what did, you, what did you feel? What was in your mind? And he said he had two thoughts. His first thought was, you know, how wonderful, we, we've done it. We, we've solved the intellectual puzzle. But he said, you know, just a few seconds later, the other thought, the other side of the coin was, okay, we've done it, but how, how terrible. I wanted to see what people's feelings were about what they were doing at the respective stages. And you find sort of at the stage where it is very much perceived as a race between the Allies and Nazi Germany, that most people are wholly focused on the task. But then things change a little when you have Germany capitulating in uh, May of, of, of 1945, which is several months before we have the test in the New Mexico desert to see whether you know, the atomic bomb that Los Alamos has been working on is actually viable. Um, you have Germany knocked out of the fray. You have Einstein, uh, after the event, very ambivalent, saying that you know if he had known that um, the Germans would not be capable of developing a bomb, he would never have lifted a finger to help with the project. You have other scientists, like uh, the Polish physicist Joseph Rotblat, who came to Los Alamos as part of the British contingent. He overheard General Groves, Leslie Groves, who was the overall head of, of the Manhattan Project, saying one night... Uh, after the Germans have been defeated, that, well, you know, we're developing the bomb, and, of course, you know, if we have difficulties with the Russians, we can always use it to demonstrate our might to them. And this really sort of shocked Rob Black. He said, well, wait a moment, the Russians are our allies. What are, what are we talking about doing here? And Rob Black became the, actually the only senior scientist to walk away from the Los Alamos project on moral grounds. He later got, much later, got the Nobel prize for peace and he devoted the rest of his life to peaceful uses and you know, medical uses of, of, of nuclear applications and he devoted his life to non-proliferation so you had a very wide range of views amongst the scientists but it all comes down to exactly what you were saying the question of individual responsibility and how each person interpreted that responsibility was it to the project was it to their country was it to mankind at large and you have many people in the closing stages of the war arguing that you know uh, nuclear technology the the science that had been developed was too important to be left to any one government Niels Bohr the Dane who had managed uh, towards the end of the war he'd escaped from occupied Denmark he'd come to England and he'd come over to the United States to advise on the Los Alamos project but he saw many of the things which happened in, in, in the post-war period he, he foresaw many of those things and he was anxious and he went on a like a personal crusade a personal mission to President Roosevelt arguing for just the things that you were talking about internationalization sharing of the knowledge 
um, <clears throat> you know, particularly telling, telling the Russians what was going on. And he also went across to England and he said the same things to the British Prime Minister, Winston Churchill. Um, I think Roosevelt was polite to Bohr, but didn't react to what he was saying. Churchill was, I think, d- downright hostile to Bohr. He thought what he was saying was highly dangerous. Churchill at that stage still very focused on the fact that you know, the war was not yet won. Britain mustn't uh, Britain and her allies mustn't be diverted. He said to his, his political aides, you know, uh, who was this man, Bo? I didn't like him. What was he saying? I think he's, he, he is in, in danger of committing mortal crimes. He even said, perhaps we should lock him up. I want to, to get you to talk about what we know about the state of the German nuclear program, whether indeed they would have been capable of producing a weapon, and specifically what the role of some German scientists were. Yes, I, I mean, I... I spent a lot of time looking at what was actually going on in the German program and have helped with some recently released, the previously secret documents from the uh, German atomic program, which have now been made available. And I was trying to unravel the story of, you know, what was really going on there? What was in their minds? And how much did they really know? And if you go back to the start of the war, as I say, it was, you know, experiments done by two German chemists in Berlin, Otto Hahn and his uh, assistant Fritz Strassmann, which actually provided the first evidence that you could uh, split the split the atom and release energy. So the basics of fission at the start of the war were really quite well understood in Germany. This is what frightened so many of the refugee scientists so much. They knew these German scientists very well. They'd studied with them for years. They'd all been together at universities and seminars. They knew how, how talented people like uh, Werner von, uh, sorry, um, uh, Werner Heisenberg was and, 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 and others. They knew that they these German scientists were clever, that they had a reasonable level of theoretical knowledge at that point. It seemed to them completely conceivable that the Nazis could be on the track of putting together um, a nuclear device. And you find in the early stages of the war, um, German scientists actually alerting the German authorities to the possibilities of the technology. And they put together what they call a uranium club, and they devote resources to it. But at the early sta- in the early stages of the war, you, of course, have these people cut off from the colleagues that they used to have all these scientific exchanges with. There's no free flow of information anymore. A lot of stuff in the published literature has dried up. So if you like, people are starting to work in a vacuum. And what I found was that uh, you have the German scientists starting to make mistakes in some of their assumptions. They're trying to look at how you can enhance the possibility of, of fissioning atoms, how you can um, slow if you're, if you're using neutrons to bombard an atom, to fissure that atom and cause further releases of neutrons, to cause further fissions, in other words, to cause a nuclear chain reaction, you know, they're trying to find ways of slowing neutrons down to make that more efficient and effective. And they went down the wrong path. They got hung up on using um, heavy water, an isotope of hydrogen, as a way of slowing down neutrons. That came from from some mistaken interpretations of experiments. And so, of course, you get them fixated on that. You get all the story of the the heavy water plants in occupied Norway and the the Nazis trying to milk those plants for as much heavy water as they could get. But, in fact, they were on the wrong track. Um, And at the same time, that's just an example of one, one of the basic assumptions they got wrong about what to do. At the same time, they had nothing like the resources. You know, we were talking earlier about the huge resources that the United States was able to, 
to put into developing plants to actually make enough fissile material to fuel bombs. You know, I mentioned earlier that ultimately the Manhattan Project and the subsidiary cost, I mean, it, it came to something like the, you know, the cost of the U.S. car industry. The Germans at war under, you know, especially in the, getting to the middle to the end of the war, uh, massive bombardment from the Allies, they couldn't do that sort of thing. Their experiments, if you look at what was actually going on, were on a very small scale. Um, you have some interesting things going on as the war develops. You have the famous or infamous visit from Werner Heisenberg to Copenhagen, uh, occupied Copenhagen to see his old friend and mentor, Niels Bohr. And people have argued, well, what was really going on there? You know, Heisenberg said, well, actually, we were going, with you know, German scientists, we were going to Copenhagen to tell Niels Bohr that we were looking at nuclear technology, but we were trying not uh, to to build a bomb, and we wanted Bohr to pass that message to the Allies so the Allies wouldn't build a bomb to drop on Germany. And that was the line that's still being pursued by um, another German scientist, Karl Friedrich von Weizsäcker, who wrote to me about this uh, and who was with Heisenberg at that meeting. So you have a lot of, I think, there's still a lot of ambiguity about what was really going on. Were they on a fishing expedition to Copenhagen to find out what the Allies knew about nuclear technology, or were they really trying to pass messages? But you go from that meeting through to the end of the war, where you get conclusive proof of how off-beam the German program had got. You have the Allies sending a special mission in the Alsace mission, racing behind the, inv- uh, just behind the invading Allied troops, trying to pick up every German scientist they knew of, trying to get to every facility, because no one knew you know, just how far the Germans really had got. And what they actually find is something on a very small scale. They find something which uh, looks by Allied standards at this stage completely ridiculous. You find little experiments hidden away in caves, uh, underground, uh, tiny scale stuff, sort of experiments that could really be loaded into a couple of lorries, as indeed they had been when they'd been evacuated out of Berlin. You compare that with the massive plants and facilities which have been built in the United States for making enriched uranium and plutonium, covering miles and miles and miles of land, huge sites employing you know, 30 or 40,000 people, nothing like that in Germany. So I think that the, the real prospects for the Germans being able to, to build a serious explosive device, absolutely minimal. Mm. And then I leap from that, you know, what the Allies actually find when they get into occupied countries and finally into Germany itself, which shows very small-scale experiments. I go from that to the uh, interviews, which were secretly taped. When the Allies got into Germany, they arrested all the nuclear scientists they could find. They shipped them back to England, and they interned them in a farmhouse in Cambridgeshire called Farm Hall. And unknown to those German scientists, their conversations were being taped. And so you have these very interesting transcripts of what the German scientists said to each other when they were uh, told the news of the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima. And they're absolutely amazed. The, the first reaction was, it can't possibly be true. You know, they're lying to us. We don't think it could have been done. You know, how, did, how could they possibly have, have solved the problems? How could they possibly have done it? And at the same time, you have them starting to jibe at each other. You know, one of them says to Werner Heisenberg, well, you know, this must be a surprise for you. It shows just how wrong your your thinking was. You know, you you must be quite embarrassed about it. <laughs> so I've covered it, and that's a huge amount of ground. Yeah. But I just wanted to sort of to try and paint a picture of sort of what had happened during those 
those five years of the war from going to the stage where the level of knowledge was virtually the same, I suppose, in Germany to what it was in Europe to what it was in America, to how you have this complete dichotomy in terms of scientific developments and the resources put into it. But you also, you raised a very interesting point about, well, what was really in the mind of German scientists? Were they actually doing their very best to try and build a bomb or were they trying to, if you like, go slow because they didn't, they were by no means all of them um, committed Nazis. Now, Werner Heisenberg is always the interesting one to look at, probably the, the most gifted of all the German theoreticians, later a leading scientist in post-war Germany, a Nobel Prize winner, a friend of many of the scientists over on the Allied side. So what was really in his mind? And you know, The conclusion I came to was that he had no real passion, I think, for Nazi Germany to be the first to have a nuclear device they could explode. He had a rather naive view of politics, and he thought that eventually, you know, the Nazis and, and so this was an evil regime which could be which could be overcome, and, and 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 the good elements of Germany could be salvaged. And it was only a question of time before that happened. But at the same time, and I think this partly explains his visit to Copenhagen, he was terrified that the Allies would get there, and that they would drop a bomb on Germany. Hmm. So therefore, he felt that, you know, the German scientists had some responsibility not to allow that to happen, to, to leave Germany without the ability to defend itself. Uh, Heisenberg and many of the others, they, were, you know, they may not have been Nazis, but they were still German patriots. My, my bottom line, sort of curiosity, does have to do with those people who would paint uh, Werner Heisenberg as something of some kind of a hero, uh, because uh, through deliberate action, he... He he contributed to the fact that the Germans did not ultimately end up with a bomb. I don't believe that. I think it's. I I found no evidence at all that he had deliberately tried to mm -hmm. um, slow the German program down. Um, I did find evidence that at various stages he had made genuine mistakes been misled by other scientists in the team and examples of him expressing genuine anger i think it was as much to do about going down blind alleys and making mistakes and not having the resources and also you know not being a cohesive team in the way that the allied scientists were and their sort of anger and outrage and confusion when they're interned and they hear the news of hiroshima shows to me that they were actually trying quite hard to solve the basic problems of, of how to achieve a, a self-sustaining uh, chain reaction, how to actually solve the problems of putting together a, a nuclear device, and indeed how to actually solve the problems of putting together a nuclear power reactor. Because they had talked very frequently to the um, army authorities about the possibilities of powering uh, submarines and ships using nuclear power as a, as a method of helping the German war effort. Preston, we want to say to you, thanks very much. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. I want to thank Bob Acosta and Rick Harmon for their training. All the mistakes were mine. The soundbite at the beginning was from the BBC4 Women's Hour of August 1st, 2005. Let's begin with the inevitable question. Was dropping of the Hiroshima bomb and, two days later, the Nagasaki bomb necessary? Did it shorten the war? Okay, let's open it up for discussion. <laughs> 